Hello, everybody, and welcome to Roundhouse Crosstalk, a podcast hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. Here at the museum, we say our lives are made of railroad stories, and we tell the stories of the railroad through the stories of people. Today, we will be discussing freight train graffiti with Dr. Jeff Farrell, a professor emeritus of sociology at Texas Christian University. Have you ever wondered what that graffiti on freight cars means? Who put it there, and why? Well, stay tuned as Dr. Farrell and I explore the history and identity of this countercultural trend. Uh, so my first question for you is just, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, again, I'm Jeff Farrell. I'm a, a emeritus professor of sociology at, at Texas Christian University and have spent my adult life studying uh, various subcultures, including many that intersect in one way or another, or another with trains. So uh, I've always been fascinated by and loved trains and, and hung out with various kinds of groups that somehow find themselves around trains as well. Awesome. And um, actually, could you tell us a little bit about your history with trains? Sure. Well, uh, uh, way back in the, around 1990, I began to study graffiti writers and, and uh, became a graffiti writer myself and wrote a book about that. And uh, this was in Denver, and much of the action was around the old Denver rail yards, a kind of dark, safe space for transgression and, <laughs> and uh, graffiti, uh, and got to know, of course, hobos and train workers. And, um, and then recently, I, I wrote a book uh, uh, entitled Drift, uh, and the book is about a number of aspects of drifting, but one of them is the contemporary world of train hoppers and gutter punks and those who ride trains, which led me uh, out of pleasure as well as necessity to go back and study the history of hobos and how the trains and the hobos sort of created each other. I know you've had uh, John Lennon on and, and I'm sure he's talked about that. So yeah, always sort of in and out of train yards and, and folks who either ride trains or paint on trains or, uh, oh, and also uh, back in the day of, or back 20 or 30 years ago, begin to see contemporary graffiti as we'll talk about emerging onto freight trains. So that of course now is a distinct subculture. So that led me back to the yards too. So a lot of times around trains. Wonderful. And um, what made you interested in graffiti specifically? Well, I've, I've always been, I guess, something of an artist. And I also uh, was trained to study groups that get labeled as deviant or problematic and try to understand those dynamics. And so back in Denver, back in the late 80s, early 90s, I began to see media coverage that suggested that graffiti was the worst problem, the worst crime problem, the worst pollution problem in all of Denver. I knew that couldn't be true, so I wanted to find out why the authorities were so upset by it and what the graffiti writers themselves were up to. Mm -hmm. So I made my way into the graffiti underground and became part of that world and and uh, helped, I suppose, unravel what was going on. Mm -hmm. You know, that's really interesting because um, during my conversation with John Lennon, he mentioned how contemporarily during like the peak of hobo culture, there would be newspapers that write about how you should put out poisoned pies because hobos are the worst moral threat to American society at the time. Um, so it's interesting to think of that little connection there between how yeah. hobos were seen and then how graffiti is seen. Precisely true. And when I, I think there's a, some links there about people who are mobile and who uh, are seen as sort of operating on the margins of society. And for people in the mainstream or for the authorities, they're seen as posing a threat. And mm -hmm. it's very easy to construct them as sort of folk devils or problems because they tend to not have a voice themselves. And that's why people like John Lennon and myself, I think, write about these issues is to sort of dispel some of that dangerous mythology that got, got built up and sold to the public. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and so in your work, uh, I saw the phrase hip hop graffiti. 
And I'm just, right. can you define that term for us? How is that different from other kinds of graffiti? Sure. Uh, in, in the mid 1970s, mid and late 1970s in Philadelphia and shortly thereafter in New York, a new form of wall marking or wall writing emerged in and around the growing hip hop subculture. And hip hop, of course, in those days and to some degree still was DJs, uh, MCs, that is uh, uh, people on the microphone, people mixing records, break dancers. And the artistic version of that, in a sense, was this new form of wall writing, not, in, not totally part of hip hop, but associated with it. And originally this wall writing was uh, uh, various young kids in the Bronx and Brooklyn and in Philadelphia writing their nickname on a wall, often followed by their street number. So one of the earliest New York City graffiti writers was Tacky 183, who lived on a 183rd Street in New York City. And they began to, to distinguish their tags, as those were called from others. They began to elaborate on them, make them bigger, add, add decorations to them. And so graffiti writing, as it's still called, was always and still is about writing and writing letters, writing your name, but became more and more elaborate to the point that within a few years, there were what were called whole cars, which was a, a tag or now called a piece or a masterpiece, the size of a New York City subway car. So this new form of wall writing became very popular and got spread by hip hop culture on album covers and websites and hip hop artists, rap artists, you know, decorated their world with this kind of graffiti. And now it's the dominant type of graffiti around the world. It's it's almost as prominent in Greece or Italy or uh, Bulgaria as it is in the U.S. It's all over South America. Uh, it's it's and by the way, it's also ninety something percent of what you see when a freight train goes by oh, is this yeah. form of stylized writing, still called writing, but now the size perhaps of a whole freight car. Yeah, great. Um, and so there's a few keywords that I want to define for our listeners that are. Um, sure very important to understanding graffiti culture. So could you define um, tagging, throw-ups, pieces, and writers? Sure. Well, again, uh, graffiti writers are insistent that they not be called artists or certainly vandals. They are writers. That is, again, mm -hmm. graffiti is really a kind of uh, calligraphy. It's all based on mastering different lettering styles, being able to use your own innovative version of an R or an X or a P that no one else uses as you write your, your tag, your name, on walls. And so it's, it's the graffiti writers see themselves again as, as writers. They write on the walls, uh, not make art on the walls. Um, tags with the original small uh, handwritten version of your subcultural nickname might take one or two seconds to put on a wall. As those tags became more and more elaborate, they finally became so large, they begin to be called masterpieces, which got shortened to pieces. So mm -hmm. what you see on a freight train, for example, these days often is a piece, a masterpiece that is a large, maybe 30 by 20 foot elaborately colored lettered mural, which again is still writing a name, but writing a name very, very large and now called a piece or a masterpiece. And then some years later emerged throw ups, which are between tags and pieces. A throw up is a larger than a tag, but smaller than a piece and called a throw up because you can throw it up on a wall in three or four minutes. So a tag, three or four seconds, a masterpiece, hours and hours of work a throw up maybe five or 10 minutes of work. And so it's really a kind of gradation in terms of how elaborate and how long it takes uh, to do it. Mm -hmm. Almost all graffiti writers are members of crews, contemporary graffiti writers. So the crew would be again, the group of people you go out and do graffiti with, the people who sort of have your back when you're out in the streets, uh, that sort of thing. Oh, great. And so that leads into my next question. Uh, did most of these writers work alone? And I assume they didn't. Um, I'm curious how that interacts with the fact that these, these 
pieces and um, tags are about personal identity. Um, would they often make pieces or um, tags that were related to the crew or mostly to their own identity? Oh, that's a, that's a really great question. Uh, both. Uh, it, graffiti is in some ways all about fame. And so you get fame by getting your name up and people knowing you as a graffiti writer. But all graffiti writers are also very loyal to their crews. And so if you know how to read graffiti, again, on the side of a freight car, it will often be a piece that is the name of the writer, or it could be the writer's girlfriend or so something personal, but they'll also tag next to that the name of their crew. And what's called a roll call is when you write all your crew members' names, even though it's your piece. So you're, the piece might be by Rasta 68, and he's tags it so you know it's by Rasta 68, but he then calls roll of all the other writers in his crew so that you can see both who he is and which crew he belongs to. So good point. It's a sort of delicate balance between individual fame and group identity and group solidarity. Thank you. Um, and so freight train graffiti particularly, um, what's special about freight train graffiti? What makes it different from other kinds? Again, good question. Freight train graffiti began uh, for two reasons. One was in New York City and elsewhere by the 1980s and 90s, they were clamping down on subway graffiti. Uh, they developed chemical baths that could remove graffiti by spraying it on the subway cars. They got very, very legally aggressive about vandalizing subway cars. So that meant that graffiti had to be written somewhere else. But the second link is that, as is my, was my experience as a graffiti writer, graffiti traditionally was done in inner city areas, maybe low income areas. And these were often next to rail yards because as I know, you know, as a train person, rail yards aren't probably desirable next to a country club or a, or a high end housing development. And so graffiti writers were always around rail yards anyway. Uh, back in the day in Denver, we used the rail yard to catch rides on trains to go from one end of town to the other. So the rail yards were already there. And if you think about it, the freight train was really kind of a easy substitute for a subway car. And so graffiti then began to move on to freight trains. But as it did, it developed its own codes of style. For example, on a, on a, in, in traditional uh, contemporary graffiti, tagging the heavens or writing the heavens means doing a piece as high up as you can, which is often a kind of status symbol. Look, that, that writer did a piece all the way on the top of that building or the top of that water tower. But on freight trains, the rule evolved that you have to anchor your piece to the bottom of the freight car. So freight train pieces are almost never floating up on the freight car. If you notice, they're always at the bottom. So it developed a different set of codes as to what was good freight train riding compared to what was good riding otherwise, even though it's still very much the same sort of graffiti and the same sort of riding. Mm -hmm. And so why did they have to keep their uh, work on the bottom of the cars? I, I don't know, <laughs> because that's the rule. <laughs> um, I, I, I have done some freight train graffiti. And I know many freight train graffiti writers, and they all agree that's the rule, but no one can exactly explain why that's the rule. Um, <laughs> but it's simply a kind of uh, stylistic standard that you that you anchor, you create a foundation on the freight car for your graffiti. And by the way, on the, freight, if the fact that the freight car is leaving, of course, also means that graffiti writers know and talk about this regularly, that the network of freight trains around America becomes a, net, a medium. It becomes the medium instead of TV or internet, the freight trains take your work to Seattle and Philadelphia and LA. And so if you go to a rail yard and watch the trains roll by, you'll see pieces and work from all over America, sometimes from Canada and Mexico as well. But to know where it's from meant that another convention had to evolve, which was noting the city you're from, as well as noting your tag name and your crew. So whereas a piece in a particular city would simply denote my name is a graffiti writer and my crew's name. 
On freight trains, it's often signed in a way that you can tell the writer, the crew name, and the city that it originated from. So you can look and say, ah, oh, there's a piece from Omaha, there's a piece from LA, that sort of thing. In partnership with the First Partners Office and the Natural Resources Agency, the California State Park Adventure Pass provides free entry for fourth graders and their families at 19 amazing state parks throughout California, including the California State Railroad Museum. Passes are valid until August of 2022. To sign up, visit reservecalifornia.com. You can find out more about the Adventure Pass at parks.ca.gov slash adventurepass. And what do you think the motivation is for sending out these images of someone's name and their crew? Um, is it just to say, hey, I'm here? Or is there another message that they're trying to send out? There, it's really a little bit of a different message. Graffiti, the, the book I wrote about graffiti some years ago was I titled Crimes of Style because what I learned being a graffiti writer and learned from interviewing hundreds of graffiti writers was it's all about style. That is the quality of your paint, the way you blend colors, how sharp your edges are, how well you design your letters. So it's not enough to simply say I'm here because if you don't have style, your piece will get gone over or vandalized or tagged over and say, you don't need to be on these freight cars. So you have, it's not just enough to be, be up as they say, you have to be up with style. And so you're sending, you're sending your piece out for the world to see and betting that the style of it is good enough that no one will vandalize it or critique it. And so it's really kind of a style battle that now with freight trains goes on at a national or even sort of continental level all over North America. I see a piece in my rail yards here in Texas from Seattle, and I think, man, that crew is good. That writer has style. I might take a photo, post it on the web. So it's sort of a nationwide battle over fame and, and style. So there, there's conversations happening between the writers when they make Absolutely. Pieces. And not only that, we can get more to this later, but there's also conversations between contemporary graffiti writers and those doing hobo graffiti or other kinds of graffiti. So the, if you know how to read a freight car that has paint on it, it's often a, it's often layers of conversation, critique, saying hello, dissing somebody, making fun of them, uh, complimenting them, where something's written next to something else, what they say about it, where they draw an arrow. It's like a community bulletin board that travels cross country uh, in, in these freight cars. Mm -hmm. So if you make a piece and it's it's respectable and it's been made with skill, people will leave it alone generally? Uh, that's right. Or if they don't leave it alone, they themselves are inviting trouble. So if, a, if a, it's uh, someone who's not very good, it's called a toy. So if a toy writer goes up over a really good piece, they're going to get attacked. I don't mean physically attacked. Occasionally mm -hmm. that happens, but it's almost always on the level of style. So mm -hmm. they'll be noted as to who that is. And now their work will be destroyed. So it's a, it's a sort of ruthless battle over who has the right to earn respect and, and right. And to have their pieces respected. So Kings, those who are considered the best graffiti writers would net I've seen pieces up by well-known writers that have been up 20 years and never been touched because no one would dare vandalize or, or diss or mark over the, the work of one of the best writers. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad we're talking about this very specific subculture of respect and of skill, because, you know, we have pieces here at the museum that are, have been, you know, they're freight trains, so they have graffiti right. on them. And we'll right. get questions from visitors of, oh, why don't you remove the graffiti? You right. know, it's, they think it's ugly, but it's just as much a part of the exhibit as the rest of the rail car is. Oh, definitely. And, and you know, one thing I would have never known, I guess it's why we do research, and we can talk more later about this if you like, yeah. is that 
many rail workers, those who work down in the yards, not up in the tower, right, or in the ministry of offices, but those who actually are checking the brakes and putting the trains together, they also understand that this now is sort of part of, that they, they understand that graffiti itself, back to Hobo graffiti, has been part of train culture for over a century now, almost a century and a half. Well, actually, it has been a century and a half. And so, as you say, they have some respect for that as well. As, as you say, as opposed to let's remove it, it's more like this is part of what it means to be on a freight train. I have to say before I forget, another thing that's really cool is that graffiti writers have learned that if you do a piece over the identifying numbers on a freight car, mm -hmm. the, the railroad will have to repaint that because they've got to have those identifying numbers to make up freight trains. Mm -hmm. And so what graffiti writers often do is tape a piece of cardboard over the identifying numbers on the freight car and then do the piece, leaving the numbers out of respect for the rail workers who need those numbers to identify the car. So it's another kind of conversation between the rail workers and the graffiti writers. Wow, that is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I think a lot of people think of the graffiti as like an act of defiance or something trying to be rude, but that little moment yeah. of consideration, that says Absolutely. a lot. Yeah, it, it is an act of defiance in many ways against, you know, maybe the police or the rail, rail, yeah. rail yard bulls, as they still call them. In other words, you are sort of getting away with something, but, I'm, but it's never an act of defiance against the railroad or the rail workers. Mm -hmm. It's understanding this is our kind of shared space and we've got to find a way to coexist. Mm -hmm. um, and in your research, have you met rail workers that had good relationships with uh, writers? I have. And, and again, we talk, well, there might be some other time we can talk about this, but I've also met rail workers who had, in some ways, sympathetic relationships with train hoppers and hobos. Again, you love the trains. I love the trains. One thing I found is the more a person knows about the trains, knows how to stay safe in the rail yards, knows not to cross tracks when there might be a train being uh, uh, made, made up, the more you understand the trains, the more the train workers respect you. So that again, there's kind of a shared knowledge, understanding of how the tracks work, uh, you know, how you how you hump a train, um, uh, when things depart, uh, wh what not to ride over. And the, the more respect is shown in both ways, the more it works out as a kind of cooperative relationship. Yeah. Are there situations in which a rail worker will look the other way if a writer is trying to you know, make a piece? Uh, yes, <laughs> I think I think there are. And and. Well, we can talk more about this later, but the, uh, uh, but to suggest what we might talk about later in terms of the tradition of hobo graffiti, mm -hmm. which is a whole different tradition, what we now know is that some of that hobo graffiti back then and to this day isn't written by hobos, it's actually written by rail workers. In other words, they're always around their own trains, and so they enjoy the conversation that occurs with hobos via hobo graffiti. Mm -hmm. So in fact, it's not just hobos writing hobo graffiti. Sometimes it's also people in the yards or people who you know, clean the trains or, or uh, maintain the trains. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and how would you define hobo graffiti as how it's different from hip hop graffiti? Sure. Whole different tradition. Uh, again, typically mutual respect between the two. Each person tries not to go over the other's work, but a whole different tradition. As John Lennon may have mentioned when he talked with you, hobo, hoboing emerged after the Civil War in the United States, um, partly because of all the dislocated ex-Civil War soldiers who had no place to go home to, but mostly because the trains were expanding west. And as the, as the transcontinental tra tra rail lines went west, there was really no ready workforce. So they, in a sense, had to take their own workforce with them. So these were people who rode the trains, then built the next track, and then rode that track to the next work site. So this mobile workforce became the hobos who, who knew the trains, who felt they had a right to the trains because they'd helped lay the tracks and build the train lines and who needed the trains to get from seasonal work to seasonal work. So hobos typically followed the harvest or 
took a freight train, hopped a train up to Washington to harvest apples or a train down to Arizona uh, to, to harvest cotton. So hobos were mobile workers whose mobility was entirely dependent on the trains they also had helped build. So the trains and the hobos really, in some ways, created each other as they moved west. And so hobos developed their own style of graffiti, which were called monikers. And monikers are often, uh, again, nicknames and also a little cartoon image that a hobo puts on a train, often with a location and a date. So if I'm trying to find one of my hobo friends, I can, in a sense, trace his or her monikers to see, oh, she's heading west, or oh, she was here just last week in, in the Las Vegas yards or by this layup outside of Sacramento. So hobo graffiti became a way of, again, saying I'm here and, and claiming your identity, but also kind of, well, a number of people have called it the, 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 the moniker trail. That is, you would follow the trail of someone to know where they'd been and how far they'd gone and where you might find them. Um, did they send other messages through hobo graffiti? Would there say be something on a, a rail car that says, car has a bowl that's real mean or something? Absolutely. Like <laughs> and this, by the way, I, I, I get it. I'm eager to talk about this. But what I can tell you is that, uh, yes, it's, it's an ongoing mystery just how much of hobo writing was coded writing as to this house will give you food, don't stop here because the bulls are mean. No one quite knows exactly how that worked, which I love, because no matter how much research we do, we can't quite crack the code of what exactly was going on. But, but we do know, yes, certainly there were messages left. In fact, I've seen a few of those on the sides of trains. I, back again in the 80s and 90s, I was also trying to document old hobo graffiti. And sometimes you'd see like, don't stop in Nebraska or keep your head down when you go through Yuma, Arizona was one, you know. So, but also it was, it could be coded as well. So precisely it was a, in the same way that the freight cars are a kind of medium for contemporary graffiti writers, they were also a, a medium or a communication network for hobos who you got to remember were often in those freight cars and around those rail yards anyway, because that's how they got around. So there's specific codes in hobo graffiti. Are there specific codes in hip hop graffiti as well? Yes. I mean, I, I would argue again that any subculture is in some ways a subculture because those inside know the codes and those outside don't know the codes, whether that's sports fans or drug users or uh, <laughs> Facebook groups and those, right? So, so absolutely. I mean, for example, in contemporary hip hop graffiti, there are all sorts of codes of respect about how you blend paint. There are little inside jokes. In my book, I wrote about the fact that in the, in the crew I was a part of, there was a big battle between two crew members. One said, you do graffiti to get rich. And the other one said, no, you do graffiti for the sake of the beauty of it. And so the guy who said you do it to get rich would do pieces that said things like the day money died or had like little dollar signs with X's through them, which was his conversation with the other guy on the walls, right? So the way you fade the paint, the little messes you leave are all jokes and inside information, which was true for the hobos as well, in terms of, you know, how they would draw little train tracks, they would draw arrows, they would leave codes about where to stop, where not to stop. It's a way of, uh, uh, Dick Hebdige, the great cultural theorist talked about hiding in the light you know, and so in a sense, these are freight, these are trains, they're out in the middle of it, everybody can see them, but you hide the tr on the train, the message you don't want anybody else to understand, mm -hmm. by the way you code it or, or stylize it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and would you consider freight train graffiti kind of a, a modern vestige or continuation of hobo culture in general? Yes, I, I would say those who have reason to be in and around trains or on them, have always left some kind of stylized marking. So while hobo graffiti came out of the culture of, of transitory workers mm -hmm. and contemporary graffiti came out of urban street culture, 
Mm-hmm. They certainly share a kind of respect for each other as we know trains, we love trains, mm-hmm. uh, and we use those trains as our, in a sense, if you think about it, if you don't have access to a television studio, you don't, can't start your own radio station or your own podcast <laughs> because you don't have the money or institutional support, you still find ways to communicate with what you do have and what mm-hmm. generations of people have had is access to freight trains. And so over and over again, those have become the mobile medium for communication across space. And so freight freight train graffiti, um, it still exists today, right? Oh, yes. Uh, In fact, there's a, well, I'm not sure if this is true, but you could almost say there's as much contemporary graffiti on freight trains as there is on urban walls. Freight train graffiti has become huge among graffiti writers. There There are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of graffiti writers who write exclusively on trains, right? So I'm a, I'm a freight train graffiti writer. I'm not a city graffiti writer. So yes. And there's also still some old hobos out there, but what's also interesting, there's a kind of neo-hoboism, which is younger people who want to keep alive the moniker tradition of hobo writing and therefore go out. I, I know a couple, I haven't done this actually, but I know a couple of people, I've been out with them. And so they very carefully put their moniker up on freight trains, which it looks just like an old hobo moniker out of respect for that tradition. There, there's a fellow here in Texas called Texican Goth who draws an outline of a bat and puts TG inside for Texican Goth and often a little saying. And Texican Goth is an aficionado of and a lover of old hobo graffiti. And he feels like the best way he can respect that tradition is to carry it on on the sides of freight cars. Mm-hmm. So it really gets complex as to how to read that car and what each of these things uh, mean. And, and have the cultural practices um, around hip hop graffiti and freight train graffiti, have they changed at all now that internet access is basically ubiquitous? You bet, of course. Um, I'll try to keep this short, but, but first of all, there's a tradition. <laughs> okay, okay. There's a tradition called benching. Uh, B-E-N-C-H-I-N-G, and benching is knowing where to go in, in Fort Worth or Dallas or Sacramento or L.A., where you won't get caught, but you can sit on a hillside or on an old beer crate and watch the trains go by, mm-hmm. and you and your friends can drink beer and say, oh, wow, there's there's that dude out of Yuma, Arizona. There's Rasta 68 out of Denver, and so benching is appreciating the moving art gallery that's always going by you, or you can bench for homography, right? You can sit and say, oh, my God, there goes uh, there goes Palm Tree Herbie. There goes Bozo Texino. Those are famous hobo graffiti writers. And so benching was loving this so much that not only do you want to do it, you want to sit and appreciate it as an art form. Mm-hmm. Well, you can probably see where I'm going with digital cameras and camera phones and easy uploads to the web. Now, of course, benching is often that you're also snapping photos and even, even in real time uploading those. And so you say, I went benching last night and look what I found. Here's a famous piece by so-and-so, you know, out of San Francisco. And so it's, it's not, the web hasn't replaced the actual practice of doing graffiti and, and, note, and noticing it, but it's created a different, a different forum for uh, showing off what you found and sharing images online. Mm-hmm. So a writer wouldn't use the internet to, to boost their own work, but instead people can use it to boost what they've noticed of other people's work. Well, no, remember, it's all about fame. And so actually a writer would use the internet, but the writer wouldn't just do something digitally on a website. The writer would do something on a train and then photograph it, Mm, right? So you still need to be sensually engaged with the railroad, even though you may get more famous among other people by the the images, Mm. which by the way, I just have to say parenthetically has raised a fascinating conflict now in the worlds of graffiti, which is 
do you pick a freight train or do you pick a spot based on how much you like it or how safe it is or how good the piece will look? Or do you pick it because it's photographically appealing? Mm. That is, are you doing graffiti for graffiti? Are you doing graffiti to create the image of graffiti to upload to the web? So a kind of philosophical issue has crept in, like why are you doing it in the first place? Are you doing it to do it? Or are you doing it so it'll look good when you photograph it? <laughs> so there's where it, it also kind of has an interplay between the digital world and the, the analog world. Mm-hmm. We've got pieces getting Instagrammed now. <laughs> That's right. Well, it's all right. It's very much like celebrity culture. Did you wear that dress because it looked good at the at the opening, or because you knew it looked good photographed? You know what mm-hmm. what's real and what's not real. Yeah. The California State Railroad Museum is now the proud home of a new exhibit by the National Model Railway Association. Next time you're in the museum, make sure to swing by our state-of-the-art exhibit up on the third floor, where you'll see beautifully designed model railroads and a look behind the scenes of the hard work that goes into model railroading. You can also see an exhibit reveal up on our YouTube page. And so how would these like the, the appreciation of pieces on a freight train, how is that different from being at an art gallery or an art show? Uh, well, first of all, it's illegal. <laughs> and so, you know, th- this is another long-standing debate. Since graffiti, and by the way, hoboing too, as you mentioned, and hobo graffiti have, have always been illegal, then the, then the question is, is that illegality inherently part of it? And mm-hmm. I would argue, yes, it is. That is the, the thrill you get from it, the, the courage it takes, or even maybe the recklessness it takes to risk arrest or getting beat up by a, a prickly mean bull, mm-hmm. um, isn't just a side effect, I would argue. That's been inherently what graffiti, both hobo graffiti and contemporary graffiti have been since they started. Now there are some folks who say, well, why not simply do hobo graffiti on a canvas and show it in a gallery? Or why not, as many well-known graffiti writers, contemporary writers do, why not paint canvases as well or get get a corporation to pay me to paint a wall. I, I was in London recently and developers pay graffiti writers to do murals on their walls because it, it increases the value of the hip urban property. So that's another debate is, is it still graffiti if it's legal? And some graffiti writers say absolutely not. If you're not risking arrest and feeling the adrenaline, that's, that's not graffiti because that was always part of it. Others say, no, it's the images. And so you can do an image on a legal wall as well as you can on a freight train. I tend to be in the camp of the illegality, the adrenaline, the risk, the adventure was so inherently part of it that, that to me is a more authentic version of, of graffiti. Mm-hmm. And I think another key difference is that when you're um, looking at a piece on a freight train, the artist is almost definitely not present. Exactly. You can't have that conversation. Everything you know about this artist, you're getting purely from looking at their piece. That's a great point. And so it, it, it creates a, I've written about this many times, it creates a kind of meritocracy, which is, I don't know if that writer is male or female, black, Hispanic, mm-hmm. or white. By the way, uh, just an example, uh, an old friend of mine from the graffiti world, still in touch with him, Rasta 68. Rasta 68 actually is not black. People have seen Rasta's black because of his name, but he loved, he loved Rastafarian culture and, and uh, reggae music. So like, you don't even really know, is this a man or a woman or a, or a, or what ethnicity they are, you've got to judge it by the art. And that's a great point, even more so on freight trains, because you're unlikely to ever meet the, the artist whose work you see going by. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's just, again, a good point. That's very different than a gallery opening as well. 
where you can sit and chit chat and tell me what you meant by that and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And notice, by the way, it's a mix of fame and anonymity. So by sending your piece out on a freight car, you're both losing control of it and becoming a kind of anonymous artist, but you're also gaining more fame for your graffiti identity, even though people don't know necessarily who Futura 2000 is. Mm -hmm. They've seen Futura's work all over the country. Yeah. And um, so what are walls of fame? Yeah, walls of fame are to me a fascinating phenomenon. Early on uh, in graffiti, in the graffiti world, there were locations that had particularly attractive walls or were hidden from the police and therefore would not be, or, or hidden from those who might paint over graffiti because they didn't want it. And so, you know, down a gully, under a railroad bridge, inside an abandoned building became places where you could take your time and paint and you knew good work was done. And so if you were trying to make your name as a king or, or work your way up to being a top level writer, you wanted to paint on that wall. So walls of fame became the most desirable place to paint that had the best pieces. It, they almost became sort of street galleries or urban galleries. Uh, by the way, back to train culture, in the early days in Denver, when I was first involved in graffiti in the very early 1990s, there was still an old roundhouse. I know it's the title of your podcast, right? There was yeah. still an old abandoned roundhouse down the rail yard. Well, you can imagine what a great, that it quickly became a wall of fame mm -hmm. because you could go inside the roundhouse. There was all those walls and nobody could see you inside there. So one of the first walls of fame in Denver was the interior of this old roundhouse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So walls of fame are where the best work goes up and tends to stay up. Yeah. And so walls of fame, I assume there's limited space. Do they ever end up painting over each other? Ah, see, you're getting it. Exactly. It, <laughs> walls of fame are, again, vicious meritocracies. If you say, I'm going to paint on this wall of fame, whose piece are you going to go over? Because if you go over somebody's piece, you better be better than they are, or else you're going to get attacked and have your piece crossed out. So if I'm trying to squeeze my piece in, whose piece do I think I'm good enough to crowd out? And so exactly, it's a, it's a kind of ruthless meritocracy where you better be really good if you think you deserve to be up on that wall of fame or else somebody will go over you within 24 hours because you don't deserve to be up here. Yeah, exactly. The lack of space that, by the way, I wrote about that too. You would think the freight, you know, you think there's a million freight cars, there's endless walls in the city, but there's not endless desirable walls. There's not endless desirable freight cars. Those demand a certain level of skill and, and respect. What makes a freight car more desirable than another freight car? What it, what's already on it. Uh, so oh. for example, if, if you saw a piece in a freight car by a famous rider and it's parked in your rail yard and you got access to it, before you think about putting your piece up there next to his or hers, mm -hmm. you better be sure you're good enough because if not, the next city it goes to, somebody's gonna go, oh my God, that's that's a, a Futura 2000. What is, this, what is this toy doing up there next to him? And they'll cross your piece out or, or go over it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Although by the way, different, train, different tr freight cars have different values. I mean, the cars they move uh, automobiles in, which have the perforated metal, you don't really want to paint on those because it's hard to paint on that perforated metal and the paint will go through and get on the new cars. And so if you do get caught, you'll get busted for $100,000 in vandalism, mm -hmm. right? So you don't really want to paint on the auto mover cars. Mm -hmm. The old wooden freight cars are great because they have big open sides to them, except you got to remember the door might slide open, in which case half your piece might go away. Um, the low slung metal hauler cars that only have the black strip across the bottom are fine for tagging, but don't have room for a piece. So every kind of freight car or every kind of train car has a different value as a place to, to do graffiti. Mm -hmm. 
Why only freight cars? Why don't they ever go for passenger cars? Is it just because they're uh, rarer? <laughs> passenger cars are full of people who are going to see you do it. Um, mm -hmm. Passenger cars don't usually hang out in the rail yards, right? Those lay up often in more secure places or are right next to a station. Um, they're not really very good for painting because they got a bunch of windows. They don't have that much open space. Mm -hmm. So I, no doubt somewhere out there, somebody has tagged a, a passenger train, but I've never seen it. And I've certainly never seen a piece on a passenger train. Um, by the way, similarly, uh, 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 locomotives or, or uh, engines, engine units are sometimes painted on, but not as much because there typically is going to be a engineer in that unit. Mm. <laughs> and also it's, you want to respect the fact that that person has to be able to see out the windows and needs their identifying markings. So again, there's, there's not all freight, not all freight trains are equal mm. <laughs> in terms of where you want to paint. Yeah. Um, and so obviously the writers compete with each other, but do they ever collaborate with each other in a decentralized way? So could two writers from completely different crews kind of work together on a piece by adding to each other into one kind of cohesive yeah. Absolutely. Uh, there are often, again, some crews have beef, you know, beef means we don't like each other. We got some kind of historical conflict, but other crews don't have beef. They're different crews, but they get along. And so they might do a joint piece or it might be sort of decided it's okay for the member from one crew to work with a member of another crew because they went to the same high school or live in the same neighborhood or, or have a common interest in a cartoon character or a style of graffiti writing. So yeah, not, not all crews would share members or cooperate, but, but some would depending on their history and, and who's in them and what their shared interests are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, by the way, if they do, then of course it would be tagged in a way to let everybody know this is a joint production, mm. right? So you'd be sure that both, not only were both writers identified at the edge of the piece or at the bottom of it, but you'd, you'd always be sure that both crew names went up too. So everybody knows this is a, an act of mutual respect and not appropriating one crew style by another crew. Mm -hmm. And so all this talk about the limited space and the covering each other and the crowding each other out. Are there any pieces that are, I mean, how long does a piece last? Are there any pieces that are considerably longer than others because they were, they were made in the eighties and they're just universally respected or are by now are those all covered? Uh, good question. Again, two things. One is a piece lasts longer, the more it and the writer who did it are respected. So exactly. So some many writers at this point are nationally known. So if a piece by a nationally known writer rolls into my local freight yards, mm -hmm. anyone who knows this style of graffiti is not going to mess with it. So it lasts longer in almost direct proportion to how famous that writer is, unless <laughs> that writer has beef with somebody else who there, even Banksy, by the way, has a longstanding beef with, uh, Oh, I can't remember this guy's name. So even Banksy might get, even though everybody would totally respect Banksy, the one guy he has beef with might mess up his piece. So it lasts longer depending on the quality and status of the writer, unless there's beef involved. But it also lasts longer, again, if you don't cover up the railroad identifying numbers such that the rail crews have to paint over it to get the numbers back on the car. Mm -hmm. So the more you know railroads and know how to paint it and where, the more likely it is to, to stay up. Yeah, mm -hmm. so you're right. You, they fade, of course, in the sun, but you you can, if, if, if a typical freight train that rolls by, you can see some older pieces in among the newer ones. And they'll, sometimes they're dated as well, by the way. So not, sometimes you know exactly what year it was painted. It makes me wonder how many pieces have just been completely lost if no one's ever photographed them and if they've been covered up and there's really no way to get them back, is there? 
Absolutely. That's another thing that many graffiti writers say makes, they say, this is what makes me more of a real artist than mm -hmm. a gallery artist is I take the risk. In fact, I almost am certain that every work I ever do will be destroyed eventually. Uh, so you're right. I, I've, I've written about that too. Like what, maybe 98% of all graffiti ever written has never been recorded. Although of course, more lately with, with, with uh, cell phones, by the way, Susan Phillips, she can tell you this story. I don't have it quite right, but she somehow found a trove of photographs somebody made, I think in the fifties of hobo graffiti from like the 1890s. So this is like invaluable, right? To have an image of hobo graffiti from 130 years ago, you should contact her. It's, it almost gives you chills to see these old, uh, uh, well, a number one was the most famous early hobo. Jack London wrote about a number one and she found somehow a trove of old photos, I think in a historical society in Northern California, maybe. And there's even an image of a number one's moniker, which if you know this world almost gives you a chill, it's almost like a ghost from the past that we thought we'd never see. And here's here's a number one's moniker, you know, photographed 70 years ago. So yes, it's a fascinating kind of, again, it's visible, but it's often gonna be invisible before you, before you know it. Mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned this way, way long ago, but I've been wondering about it. Um, can you make money from being a graffiti writer? Can you be a career writer? Yes and no. For I would say for the vast majority of graffiti writers, as, as Rasa68, my old friend, said in the book I wrote, I quoted him, he said, it's one of the few crimes where you're guaranteed to lose money. In other words, you got to buy the paint. And if, if you get busted, you got to pay a fine. And so I would say most graffiti writers lose money. But and again, this is a long story. I'll make it at least halfway short. But with the with the identification of graffiti with hip urban culture and with the reemergence of wall art, which is often done by ex-graffiti writers or current graffiti writers, more and more graffiti writers are making money because an old historic building wants them to paint an image of, of the city 100 years ago, or a hip developer in London wants to have his walls look even more hip by having wall art. And so the weird thing is that, uh, I saw a meme the other day that said, congratulations to drugs for winning the war on drugs. Well, you could also say congratulations to graffiti for winning the war on graffiti, because oddly enough, despite all the attempts to stop it, more and more ex-graffiti writers are now making a good living as designers, graphic artists, but especially as urban street artists. That is, in fact, some of them, by the way, still might tag at night and by day get paid 10,000 bucks to do a mural, you know, in New York City or on a wall of a development in San Francisco or L.A. So, so much like I would say capitalism in general, a few make good money from it and most probably lose money. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting, um, I'm catching a theme of nostalgia a lot. And I, I think it's an, an interesting conflict, or I guess mix between the nostalgia for the golden age of, age of rail, as well yes. as nostalgia for, you know, 80s and 90s hip hop culture. And they right. combine in this fascinating way. <laughs> right, precisely. And and again, what's so interesting is how much everybody I know involved in all these worlds loves trains. Oh, I have to say, <laughs> you, this may strike you as funny. It kind of strikes me as funny. Uh, many graffiti writers I know buy model trains and then use ink pens and, and uh, uh, what do you call those? Paint pens to do murals on the side of model trains. <laughs> and, and so if you go to a graffiti writer's apartment, you'll often see up on the, high on the wall a shelf full of model trains. And so again, it's like, wait a minute, are you a kid who loves model trains? Yes, I, I kind of, I'd love trains, right? <laughs> but also, as you say, I love graffiti on trains, you know? And mm -hmm. so you're right, there's a, 
I've, I've written about this too. I think this really is, uh, uh, Grill Marcus talked about the old weird America, you know, not the shopping mall America, not the internet America, the old weird America, like the blues and country music and, you know, drinking moonshine and mm-hmm. being on the road. And I think, as you say, so much of this is loving the old, weird, tactile, dangerous, sensual America of, you know, creosote and rail yards and freight trains and the sound of the trains smashing and being made up and the click of the rails. So you're right. I think this is almost kind of alternative America that kind of wants to live in the, in the past of, of rail cars and not so much in the present of, uh, you know, high speed travel or, or digital communication. Mm-hmm. It just it goes to show how much rail fans and graffiti writers or appreciators of graffiti they have a lot more in common than I think a lot of people would assume. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And by the way, the, here's another example. If you go in California to the uh, oh, I, I'll get this name wrong, uh, Tehachapi Pass, I think it is. Do you know that pass? I think so. Yeah, I, I think it's Tehachapi. Tehachapi. I think it's near Bakersfield, maybe. But it's where the freight trains climb up a series of switchbacks to go over the pass. And so they slow down to like one mile an hour because of the grade being so sharp. And if you go there, you'll see all these cars parked and half the people have their cameras out because they're taking photos of trains because they love trains so much. And another half are graffiti writers taking photos because the graffiti is going by so slowly, it makes it easy to photograph. So as you say, you got like, you know, inner city hip hop graffiti writers and some old train aficionado. But what they share is they both want to see a train up close mm-hmm. and, and photograph it. <laughs> yeah. People love trains. What can I yeah. say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they love what trains can do for them, right? And, and trains can be transportation. They can be a medium. Uh, they can be a home, you know? Yeah, precisely. A, 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 a career. Yeah. They like what trains represent. They represent an Americana and whether it's in an alternative Americana or if it's a kind of uh, more conservative Americana, right. people are going to find that in trains yeah. somehow. But as you say, I think a lot of it is also a dissatisfaction with the present mm-hmm. and, a, and a sort of nostalgia for that version of America. Yeah. 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 Who would have guessed that graffiti writers and rail fans had so much in common? Thank you so much for listening to Roundhouse Crosstalk, a podcast hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. I hope to see you next time. Goodbye.